The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Black Panther is a world leader. That's a responsibility that the other superheroes don't commonly have. That he has to look out for an entire nation. Soon, there will only be the conquered and the conquerors. The Dora Milaje are women who pledged their lives to the throne and to the security of the kingdom. Wakanda forever! Hey y'all, this is Represent and I'm Aisha Harris and Wakanda forever. We continue our current obsession with Black Panther this week by bringing you more Black Panther goodies. In a bit, you'll hear a conversation I had with the movie's production designer and all-around rock star, Hannah Beachler, in which we discuss not only the Marvel movie Magic, but also her work on Ryan Coogler's other films, as well as Beyonce's Lemonade. And in a second, we'll also discuss the hype around Black Panther and what it means to the Black community with my friend and fellow podcaster, NPR's Gene Demby. But first, we have a couple of notes from our Corrections Bureau. From a previous episode earlier this month in which we discussed Quentin Tarantino's depictions of race and gender, a listener was kind enough to point out to me that I misidentified how two characters in Inglorious Bastards died. I said Shoshana was killed by Christoph Waltz's character and that Diane Kruger's character was killed after rejecting another character's advances, when it was actually the other way around. So thank you, listener, for bringing that to my attention. Also, in our last Black Panther spoiler special episode, at one point, we misidentified Denzel Whitaker, who plays the younger version of Forrest Whitaker's character in the movie, as his real-life son, which, as many of you pointed out to us, is definitely not true. And I hear we might have even gotten some of you in trouble with your friends when you tried to tout that little nugget of information, misinformation out. (laughs) So we apologize for spreading the fake news. Okay, after all of that, joining me today is a friend of mine, and I can't believe it's taking us this long having this show for like almost two years <laughs> to finally get you on. <laughs> but please welcome Gene Demby, the co-host of NPR's Code Switch podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Everyone should check it out. Welcome, Gene. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I can't believe when we finally had you on, I was like, damn, has it really been that long? Like, we've <laughs> never actually been on the show before. It was so crazy. I know. Well, I say that not just because I know you, but obviously. But like, because I also just think it's a really, really great, smart podcast. Thank you for saying that. So, yeah. Well, so I'll give folks a little bit of a background. Um, the reason I thought of having you on today uh, is because, um, you know, we, we've we actually had this conversation on a listserv that we are both on. Um, and mm-hmm. you kind of expressed concern. This was before you had even seen the movie and most people had seen the movie. Concern that there was this pressure from the black community that like you had to go see this movie, not just because it's good because most people hadn't even seen it but because like you got to do it for the people you got to do it for the community for the culture for the culture and can you just talk a little bit about like where that stemmed from because i know like 
I've known you for a few years now, and you've railed against railed is probably a strong word, but you've you've <laughs> <laughs> expressed disdain uh, in the past for similar things that have happened. So talk a little bit about like how you came to this conclusion and sort of like where you are at it now, now that you've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the big thing was um, in the lead up to the movie was this. I remember someone sort of joking on Twitter, like, um, I can't wait till the first negative takes of Black Panther come out so we can, uh, so we can uh, you know, disinvite those people from the cookout. And I was like, <laughs> oh, like... Let's let's see the movie first, right? Like, but also, I think you know, I was trying to think of how to describe this this phenomenon. It's like the the auntie turnout machine, right? Like, <laughs> um, whenever there's a, a like a very I'm doing air quotes very important black movie, um, you often see a kind of like mobilizing around the movie. I mean, we know this, right? Like, there's a sort of like pressure to sort of like even the language we use is like I'm not going to go see that movie. It's like I'm going to go support that movie. We need to mm-hmm. go support that movie, right? Um and so like, you know, the church groups will go and like the frats and the sororities will go and Jack and Jill chapters will go and like teachers will take their classes classes to go see like these movies to 42 um maybe not 12 years of slave because that's really heavy. <laughs> but um <laughs> but part of that like obviously part of that is like this desire to ensure that movies like that keep being made right like all right so the movie some 42 drops and we have to go see it not just um because we care about jackie robinson or whatever but also because we want to ensure that hollywood knows that we're voting with our dollars um and that they can make more movies like this um and it's always sort of a weird there's a way in which we all become tell me if you disagree but there's a way Mm -hmm. in which it feels like we get insinuated into like watching the box office receipts for movies like this, which is really unsettling to me. Like, you right. know what I mean? Because, like, these are not collective projects. This is still, like, a movie by Disney, right? Black right. Panther in particular is a Marvel Disney movie. Like, they they um, are probably... It's probably the first black movie in history that doesn't need the auntie turn machine. You know what I mean? Right. Um, because <laughs> it has all the marketing behind it. But there's a way in which, even now, when you see people sort of celebrating the record-breaking box office from this first weekend, it's like... Ugh, like... Yes, but also like we're, it, it like this this feeling we have this very specific feeling we have about around supporting black movies and also like the specific kind of excitement around this movie, which is like mm-hmm. different than the sort of solemnity that usually greets like a lot of these like book report movies. Right, it's being monetized, and it's like a thing we have to think about the way that that is being sort of monetized. Like it's still, you know, it's, you know what I mean? Yeah, it it's it's the the obligation. Um, but I mean, I think there's like two parts of it. It's it's. It's sure. first, like you said, it's this, um, this uh, I think at this point in history, unwarranted desire to prove that black movies can sell because we've seen mm-hmm. this happen over and over again. Right. It happens like every year and a half or so. Right. This is not the first, like Black Panther is not the first movie with a predominantly black cast to like be number one at the box office. We, there are mm-hmm. several, plenty of other examples of that, um, whether it's something as smaller <laughs> Small is a relative term, but smaller as like the the best man holiday. Like that was a big movie. Right. Or girl trip. Right. Um, waiting to exhale. I think was number one at the box office. Or if it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was like up there. It was enough where like it surprised everyone. And each time right. we just see people, uh, executives especially, getting quote unquote surprised by these things. And it's like, no man, like this is <laughs> <laughs> we're we're long past the time of having to prove that like these stories do sell. And then some will argue, well, it's the global box office that matters now Uh, but like you know not not to plug and a recent episode we just did but we did just do a recent (laughs) episode with wesley snipes uh star of blade Mm -hmm. 
And that movie, I was looking at the box office receipts, and as he pointed out, that movie made almost as much abroad as it did here in the States. So, Mm. like, that's that's also not true like that this doesn't happen that these stories now granted blade is a little different in the in the, in the fact that like that wasn't a predominantly black cast although mm-hmm. that movie did have three black leads in it so right was it snipes sana who was sana lathan and then i forget the other actress's name but and, and the fact that it was like wesley snipes and then two black women at that time is like also very a big bi- a big deal so absolutely yeah so there, there's that point where it's like we keep you know as some people have pointed out we keep erasing past history and past triumphs in order to like boost this movie that doesn't need it because again like it was gonna be big even without uh all of us quote-unquote going to support it but then i think mm-hmm. like one other aspect is just like this feeling of having like not just support but like the feeling that your black card is going to get revoked if you don't yes. uh, if, if you don't go see this film the first time like the first week and it opens or if you like go see it and you're like but there's some stuff that you don't like about it and you're afraid yep. to say anything um and so i like it, it's it's like it's tough because there there's all of this uh this uh you don't want to feel as though you're not black enough because you aren't <laughs> paying attention. Because you didn't love Black Panther. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you feel... <laughs> now, I know you've had some like uh, qualms with some logistics of the movie. Like, Have you been afraid to voice them? Or is it just one of those things where it's like, I'm going to say this, come at me, and I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> you can take it or, or leave it, but... Uh, I'm saying this out loud. I mean, I'm pretty voluble on Twitter, right? But this is the first time I've been like, ah, uh, maybe I don't want to touch this one too much. You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to, like, invite the wrath of, um, you know, just because, like, one, I don't want to feel like I'm, like, raining on people's parade. Like, people love this movie and are excited about it um, in a way that, you know, I think is, you know, really inspiring to see at the same time. Um, there's all the stuff about the movie that are just, like, interesting to consider, right? Like, I mean... Obviously, I mean, are we spoiling here? Are we going to spoil? Spoiling uh, I mean, at this point, if we're talking about Black Panther, they should know this. But Verilyn hates how I always spoil things. So let's just say... <laughs> I'm speaking for the people. <laughs> uh, let's just say if you haven't seen Black Panther yet, skip ahead by like a minute or two. You've been warned. Right. <laughs> so the, uh, Michael B. Jordan plays uh, Killmonger in this movie, who was one of Black Panthers, one of the Black Panthers' like big arch villains. And in the way they write him in the movie is that he is, you know, like he has a very more, he's more radicalized because he grew up under the yoke of white supremacy in America. And he did not grow up in this like Afrofuturist utopia in Wakanda. And so his politics are obviously very different. Um, And as I was watching this, like I kept thinking there's, in a, you can imagine an alternate universe Black Panther movie directed by Ryan Coogler in which the Killmonger character is written more sympathetically, right? Like, in which he does not have sort of the... And I mean, and this is impossible to sort of suss out, like, how much of this is Coogler and how much of this are the, like, the dictates of being a Marvel Disney movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, But there's a way in which those readings are not... They seem even more charged, you know, like, I'm sorry, the characterization of Killmonger especially seemed especially charged to me um, because um, even though I have no doubt that like Coogler and the people involved in making the movie like um, had like a much more nuanced understanding of his like revolutionary politics, uh, Killmonger's revolutionary politics, you know, you can't really have the dude who's like, I want to foment global black rebellion (laughs) um, be somebody who is 
sympathetic in a Disney movie, I don't think, right? And so there's a way in which, which like, it's hard to sort of not see the apparatus, the corporate apparatus happening in the movie. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. And uh, those are all things that we should be, you know, willing to express. And I feel like for the most part, the conversations around it have been... Um, I feel like now that the movie's out, people haven't been so quick to, like, be at least, well, I haven't said anything, like, particularly um, charged on Twitter about this. So, like, maybe they're not coming for me. But, like, it seems like most people are having these conversations in ways that are productive and, and thoughtful. Absolutely. Especially amongst well, mainly be amongst like black people, um, and in a way, I think that like the the hype is the hype that preceded it um, has has died down, or at least in terms of like the the thought that like you need to see this movie, you need to go support it. Um, maybe that's just my my perspective of these things, but it seems like now like everyone's just like eager to chat about all the different things, whether it's uh, is was Killmonger right. <laughs> <laughs> or um, you know, <laughs> right. or you know, is is the the guy, the actor who plays Mbaku, uh, Winston Duke? How hot is he? Like these are the conversations <laughs> I'm seeing all over my timeline. My girlfriend turned to me in the middle of the movie. She's like, "More of him, please. More <laughs> of him, please." I was uh, like, "Yeah, yeah." There, there's so many women talking about wanting to be impregnated by him. I'm just like, this is <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but I want to kind of just and. In a way, I think, like, when we were having this conversation amongst us earlier, um, I think that in some ways, I guess I can understand your concern uh, about the hype machine because unlike last year when you had similar sort of um, rallying around certain movies, whether it was Hidden Figures or Get Out, Get um, out. those movies mm-hmm. were sort of built on word of mouth. Like, people mm-hmm. were hyping it once a few people had seen it, and then you have, like, Chance the Rapper like renting out an entire theater and like allowing all his fans to go see Get Out for free after he saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you had all these little girls um, doing cosplay as the characters in Hidden Figures. Right. But whereas with this, we have something that's more akin, I think, to your favorite movie, Red Tails. Um, <laughs> uh, the movie that George Lucas directed a few years ago that starred Actually, Michael B. Jordan was in that movie, too. Michael B. Jordan, uh, but a, yeah. Mm-hmm. But a bunch of black actors uh, about the Tuskegee Airmen or even Birth of a Nation when people literally mm-hmm. applauded before the movie and even premiered at Sundance. Um, right, exactly. Th- that sort of, mm. that 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 hype, that overblown hype. And in, in the case of those two movies, it seems they very firmly fell flat <laughs> afterwards. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, for mm-hmm. various reasons. For different reasons, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for various reasons. Um, I mean, in the case of Birth of a Nation, obviously, uh, Nate Parker's, uh, history that sort of emerged out of that certainly helped mm-hmm. although I think uh, the backlash would have come anyway because it's just not that great of a film that's um, what I kept hearing I didn't see it but that's what I that was, <laughs> oh you still haven't seen it I still haven't seen it um, in part because of the rape allegations but that was what I heard too that it wasn't that great of a film yeah I mean it was good but it was not standing ovation good by any means but i wonder if maybe there there's a chance that we could move on from now that black panther has come out we can move on from all this now that we know that this movie is breaking records left and right um and we've also seen if we look at these other two movies hidden figures and get out we've seen that like yes this can happen and this can happen in the span of a year or two we can get all these movies um but do you think we can move forward and not have to like feel like we support these things like i feel like the the support has been really 
kind of crazy. Like I'm seeing not just church like pamphlets saying we're going to see Get Out, but like I saw someone tweeting about how at one screening they had voter registration set up outside of a Black wow. Panther screening. And I was like, (laughs) I mean, part of me was like, this is ingenious. And like, Mm -hmm. yes, it's great to get out the vote. But then I was like, people are really, to your point, they are really connecting this beyond just representation to like actual political action in a way that I'm not sure if that is like useful or if that's like really productive. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, that's so wait, that's so bananas, right? Because you think, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine the kind of person who would be really excited to see Black Panther on opening weekend and have all the feelings about Black Panther and is also not registered to vote. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just trying to figure out. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> like, with the, well, I mean, with the I, universe of over... <laughs> if so, they're probably, like, not even able to vote. They're probably, like, 15. <laughs> so it's like... Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, it just seems like so much of the, the momentum around this movie is already sort of political that the people who would be going to see it would already be mostly... Um, you know what I mean? Like, already registered the vote. And I feel like there's something about the turnout here that is interesting because Disney, obviously, Disney Marvel, Marvel Disney did not obviously need to, like, have the anti-turnout machine, but they definitely, like, stoked it in a bunch of interesting ways, right? Like, there was a screening here in D.C. at the um, Smithsonian, uh, Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, uh, with Ta-Nehisi Coates and Ryan Coogler <laughs> and a room full of Howard University students. Um, and it's like, in a weird way, you could see Marvel Disney sort of recognizing that the people who were going to rubber stamp this movie, like, were not going to be the traditional Marvel comics fanboys and fangirls and cosplayers, right? Like, the people mm-hmm. who want to rubber stamp it were going to be black folks, right? Um, and a certain kind of black folks, too. Like, a, the kind of, like, you know, Howard University students, the kind of people who can be, like, um, who can, like, co-sign something as good or bad for the culture in a lot of ways you know what i mean um and so um it's been interesting to watch that play out like um because there's ways in which like you just said like that these things get so entangled there was this cover of i think gq that michael b jordan is on the cover of and he has a black beret he has the Mm -hmm. black leather jacket on he's doing the whole he's in black panther garb right like real black panther yeah right real black panther garb (laughs) right and and you're like this is strange because this dude is dressing up as a black revolutionary in the service of hype for a thoroughly capitalist project you know what i mean it's kind of beyonce right like because Beyonce did the same yes. thing at the Super Bowl mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Do we want to bring up Beyonce in negative? I'm just saying. Do we want to be hacked? No, go for it. I think that's that's well, she's right though. I mean, it, it, but it's true. Like she, <laughs> that that's what she did, and some people took offense to that. They were like, "How are you? You're exploiting this whole legacy." And you also, she. I, I'm not saying I. Well, no, I do agree with this, but like she came late to this. <laughs> like Beyonce, you right? Know, <laughs> but anyway, you, look, everyone knows I love Beyonce, but we we can criticize the people we love. As we all anyway. do, absolutely. <laughs> but that that is and this is a really interesting sort of like commingling of the symbology, like the symbolism of Black Panther of the black of the Black Panther Party with this movie, which I didn't even realize this, but I thought that there was a longer lag time between you know the Black Panther character in the Black Panther Party, but they were actually the Black Panther Party started a couple months after. Black Panther debuted for Marvel in, like, 1966. Oh, I didn't realize it was that Uh, soon. It was really close. Like, I mean, it was almost, like, contemporaneous, more or less. You know what I mean? Interesting. um, But there's a way, I guess, in which that commingling was inevitable. But also, like, you know, like, something about it is a little bit unsettling. And I think we should 
I think that's something that we should be thoughtful about when we talk about this movie. Right, right. My biggest concern, and this will be my last question for us to ponder before we go, is the way in which we've seen this hype just sort of build and build to its its uh, its peak. Uh, last week was hashtag Black Panther week. <laughs> And everyone was wishing mm-hmm. each other happy Black Panther week um, uh, for the release of the movie. And I wonder, and though, that it was what Black part, Panther means to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the hashtag what Black Panther means to me. Um, and now there's like lots of different hashtags and about like what Wakanda would be like if it was real, blah, 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 um, <laughs> which is fun. You should check those out. But um, it, it's it's interesting to me that this movie is so huge and kind of unlike anything I've really seen like I saw mm-hmm. it again the over the weekend with my partner and Ari and he was just like I don't know it, like the only thing he could compare this feeling to was Barack Obama back in 004 or 08 sorry back oh, in 08 yeah, yeah. that's exactly that's exactly right yep. mm-hmm. right and and I just wonder if it's like part of the reason well obviously part of the reason is because we're so starred for images um like this like even even discounting that there have been many examples of black movies doing well like there's Mm -hmm. still never been a movie quite like this and my concern being the cynic that i am is that (laughs) these things because like disney and other corporations will recognize this and say oh if we haley's comet this shit like that'll make (laughs) that'll make ensure that if we only do this type of thing once every every couple years not even like every seven or eight to ten years (laughs) they'll come back wanting more and again that is a very cynical i love you with the the barbershop conspiracy i love it i love it (laughs) but here's the thing though these things are so cyclical like we see Mm -hmm. these peaks we see these moments where we we have all of these whether it's you know black sitcoms in the 90s or like all of the like black rom-coms of the late 90s love jones and 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 uh, the best man and all of those we mm-hmm. see them getting made and then all of a sudden they don't get made again and then they come mm-hmm. like for for various reasons and then they come back again like a few years later and then we get all the same pieces about like what happened to the black sitcom or like where are all the black romances we remember having these in the past and i don't know i feel like it could easily happen again um or maybe not as easily but I do feel like we shouldn't get complacent. No, that's exactly right. I mean, my colleague Kat Chow wrote a, a couple years ago about that that sort of cycle of like, look, there's an explosion of, of black people on TV and then it sort of disappeared. Like, I mean, you know, for like literally 15 years, like up until basically what like the the, the period we're in now with like Scandal and Blackish and right. uh, uh, Insecure and all these things are happening right now. But like there was a time in the 90s when there was a lot of black people on TV and it just like this fallow period happened. So part of me thinks that like demographically that probably can't happen anymore like you know what i mean like that's just like when when we what we know about like who watches tv and who goes to movies now is like so heavily latino and so heavily black right that like um but it's so heavily latino but like latinos are barely getting being represented on tv you know like it's like no you're absolutely right the virgin and what else (laughs) i don't know it's a good point it's and and latinos are like far outnumber black people (laughs) it's like that's right that's uh, right yeah i mean it's I feel like it's just like of the, of this moment where we we're having a moment. I think what makes me say that maybe that we we have moved past this 
hopefully, is that we are seeing these filmmakers, Ryan Coogler, Avery DuVernay, um, mm-hmm. and, and others making more than one or two movies. Like in the past, we had mm-hmm. these these like bursts of creative energy in film and like Spike Lee was like pretty much the only one who was able to make to like be consistent and prolific mm. um, whereas a lot least, of the people like, consistent in like making a lot of movies not, not right. making good movies but making he, a lot of movies right but he was he was prolific mm-hmm. he made his movies and whereas like other mm-hmm. filmmakers especially black female fil- filmmakers like it was like right. one and done for various reasons yeah, Casey but, Lemons and, yes yeah. like lots of lots of black female directors um, mm-hmm. and now we are seeing more of these filmmakers being able to pick up and, and do more than one movie. So right. I'm hopeful, but I'm also cautiously optimistic. I mean, and to your point, like Ava, Ava DuVernay and uh, Ryan Coogler are also directing. These are like the most expensive movies ever helmed by black directors. Black mm-hmm. Panther and um, A Wrinkle in Time, which is out next month, um, which a lot of people are hype about. Um, and I wonder if, I almost wonder if the hype for Black Panther sort of stepped on the hype for A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, I, oh. I definitely think it has, but I it was... I saw someone, some random person tweeted a good tweet, which was like, props to Ava DuVernay for like this past weekend, basically just like only hyping Black Panther. And even though she has mm-hmm. a movie coming out in like two weeks, I was like, yeah, That's she, right. and there's that support that, you know, I think that support has always existed amongst black filmmakers. But now that we have things like Twitter and social media, mm-hmm. it's way more um, apparent to the public. Yes, Ava DuVernay was actually tweeting about the fact that they that Ryan Coogler and she were both editing their respective movies across the hall from each other, like Ryan Coogler was across the hall directing uh, editing Black Panther, and she was across the hall uh, editing um, A Wrinkle in Time, and just imagine like walking down the like street and talking shop. That's like amazing to think about. Yeah, well, Gene, <laughs> it's I'm so glad we finally got you on, and likewise, thank you for being so open about your uh, hesitations to fully embrace Black <laughs> Panther with the same fervor that everyone else seems to be doing, but it's been great to have R. you. R.I.P. to my mentions. <laughs> thank you so much. And where can folks find your work and your tweets? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at G-E-E-D-E-215, Philly Represent, Fly Eagles Fly. Um, and then at Code Switch, um, the Code Switch podcast, you can download wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Awesome. Thanks so much, Gene. Thanks so much, Aisha. Be easy. Up next, production designer Hannah Beachler talks to me about creating the imagery behind some of the most important works in Black culture of the last few years, including Fruitvale Station, Creed, and Black Panther. We discussed her career, her process, and what it's like working with Ryan Coogler and Beyonce. Check it out. It's a pleasure to have all the way from L.A., or in L.A., uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Hannah Beachler, who is a production designer who has been credited on many really awesome projects in the last few years, from Fruitvale Station to Creed to the upcoming Black Panther. And so it's awesome to be talking with Hannah Beachler. Welcome, Hannah, to the show. Hi, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited to talk to you because uh, the movies that I just listed and some of the other movies that you've been a part of and projects that you've been a part of have been some of my favorite things of the last few years. Um, so I'm very excited to chat with you. And the first question I wanted to ask you, actually, was just because, you know, we always hear about the director, the actors, the even the screenwriters when we talk about films. But I think a lot of people who are not exactly, you know, cinephiles or very um, well-versed in what the other roles are behind the camera, um, they might not know what a production designer does exactly. So would you mind just talking a little bit about uh, what your job is and what your day-to-day 
tends to look like when you're working on a project? Sure. You know, I, I often describe production design as uh, like being an architect. If, you know, I think a lot of people know what that is. You design buildings and buildings go up and you're kind of responsible for the way they look and all of that. So that's, you're sort of an architect of the look of the film, Um and of the sets when when you're working and you know I'm I'm production designers are normally the first people on a film um, after the director will hire someone that they work with often or you know reach out to new people if they see something that they like in another film and um, then you come on and you work with the director you work with the producers and the location scout if you're shooting a lot of locations and, you know, you help determine where those are going to be as far as what you have to do in those locations with construction and paints and set dressing and props and things. And, um, you know, you start concept, depending on the size of the film, you concept, you know, you always concept, but depending on how much time you have concept uh, ideas for the way the film will look and how the sets fit into the world. You know, you're, you're building a world um, no matter what size the film is. So, you know, we're sort of the ones who uh, put it all on screen um, as far as, like, what you see is in the way of the environment. And that involves, I imagine, um, in addition to sort of being an artist in many ways, it also involves a lot of research as well, correct? Like in terms of, especially if you're doing a period piece um, or something set in a certain location, whether it's Creed, which was set in Philly, or even Lemonade, which uh, has this very distinct aesthetic to it. What does the research usually involve? Like what what's the first thing you're trying to do when you first get assigned on a project? You know, the first thing I do, research is super important. And the first thing I do is, is, you know, start researching the place. Um, and place is really important. It can be a character and it helps you build off of what story you're trying to tell design wise. So, you know, working with Ryan, that, uh, Kugler, that's really important to him, and and it's become really important to me because I've it's informed so much of what I've done in the last two three years. I guess it's been now three four years, and um, so I start with the place, and and then I start with what's naturally there. What what are the aesthetics of that place? What are the colors that you see? The the time period of the buildings when they went up, when the place was settled, uh, you know, so you get a sense of, you know, if it's on the East Coast, it's not a real big car culture as it is on the West Coast because you have to drive on the West Coast where you have public transportation on the East Coast. How does that affect the characters and their story? Um and, you know, so it, it, there, it's a lot of research. <laughs> it's a lot of research. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that we often talk about on this show is this idea that you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And you've talked a bit about how, you know, there are very few women of color, especially, but also women who have your job and who are, are working in this field. So I'm curious as to how did you learn that what you do now could be a job and what's something you wanted to do? You know, I've always loved film. You know, I've always wanted to, I've had an affinity for, I can, you know, since I was very little. And, you know, I can remember 
always wondering like, well, how did they do that and how they do this? So that was always there. And then my father was an architect, so building was always there. And, you know, friends of mine were in bands and we'd make music videos and things. And I was always sort of the person putting the stuff on the set. You know, we didn't really know what to call it at that point. And then I went to film school and um, then I became really aware of like, okay, these are the people who do these jobs. You know, and then when I uh, a professor of mine pointed out, he's like, you know, your art direction is always really amazing. And that that seems to be what you are drawn to. And that's when I really was like, yeah, mm-hmm. um, for sure. And that's when and that's when it became a focus. Mm, yeah. And I mean, how is that something you would then turn to in school or like, can you talk about the very first uh project you got assigned to do this kind of work on? Uh, that would be, uh, like, what was the really first one? Uh, there was a really small film, and I was set decorator at that time, and it was and it was a short film, and that would be the real, that would be the first real thing that I, that I did, you know, making a paycheck and, and having a timeline and a shoot schedule and all the sort of things that go with it. And and understanding like how much time goes into this craft and uh, how much how demanding it is of you, um, which you know for real life stuff is hard, you know, because I had a son at the time. I still have a son. I mean, he's here, but he, <laughs> um, you know, he was young at the time. He was a toddler at the time. So, you know, you got to make a lot of decisions about how you want to go about living your life and I decided that this was important to me and and it's um you know been a journey ever since that but it's moving to New Orleans after sort of I got out of school and and did a lot of the um small projects as like a set decorator or a set dresser and I moved to New Orleans knowing that I wanted to do that professionally so when I got there I had my brother lived there and his wife, so I stayed with them. But I hit the ground running. I would stop at movie sets and start questioning people like a weirdo um, mm-hmm. about, like, what is this? And, you know, I'm really interested in art department. And soon enough, people started sort of pointing me in the right directions, like, oh, go talk to this person. They're, you know, a set decorator. They may need, you know, people to help. And after about six weeks of just nonstop sending my res my little resume out and you know calling people probably annoying people uh finally someone was like you know what there's this guy you know down down the road from where we're shooting that's working on a small project he needs people so that's I went down there and he was like yeah you know uh you can be a set dresser and that's that was like the first official job um in New Orleans that I had called Labou and um, <laughs> about a little swamp creature. And um, Dave Blass, who's a production designer now, he does a uh, um, preacher, I believe. And um, oh, the TV, the TV, TV show? show was the yeah. designer that hired me. And, wow. you know, I saw him at the ADG Awards not long ago. And he was like, you know, I hadn't seen him since then. And uh, so it was pretty cool to to see him again. He's the one that gave me my real first job, actually. And um, yeah. so it's it's it was just being really dogged in my pursuit of finding work and not giving up, not 
you know, and knowing that I wasn't going to walk in as a production designer. You know, I started as a set dresser and I found it really important to know every job in the art department and, and know what it takes to do those do those jobs. So I worked my way up and and built a resume in New Orleans and, you know, soon signed with an agency, which, you know, I make it sound easy. It's not. But, you know, I sent like 100 emails and got one response that was like, yeah, let's talk to you. <laughs> so it's just constantly just pursuing it and 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 the drive to do it is really and, and not, you know, creating your own opportunities in some senses and um, finding good people to work with. Mm. So I want to I want to ask you about, of course, Beyonce <laughs> and Lemonade. I'm sure you've talked a lot about it. It's It's been almost two years since mm-hmm. it came out. But uh, I'm curious as to sort of if you can describe, if you're able to describe what you were told was her vision when you first heard about the project and got involved. And what was that process like of trying to develop the imagery to match it, um, especially seeing as like, I imagine you you were able to hear some of the music or you were had some sort of inclination of where she was going with this. But I also have heard things about her being sort of very secretive and you might get things piecemeal and not as a whole. So could you talk a little bit about just what that vision was and how you um, worked to meet what she was looking for? Mm-hmm. She was very secretive about it, you know. Um, I heard two of the songs at the time. I, that's that's Those are the only... I only heard two, which was um, All Night, I believe, and uh, Don't Hurt Yourself. But I didn't get to hear the rest mm-hmm. of the songs. Um what I was originally told, they didn't tell me much at first. They didn't even really tell me it was Beyonce at first. Oh, okay. And um, they they called her Lemonade. And so they're like, you know, it's a pop star and, um, you know, lemon, it's Lemonade. And, you know, she was like really wanting to, you know, be on this plantation and talked a lot about, you know, empowerment, um, black women empowerment and and sort of flipping the script in a bit of an Afrofuturistic way on what a plantation is. So the idea was that um, these black women owned this plantation, this secret plantation where they educated uh, young black girls and and sort of took care of themselves back in this you know 1800s. So in that sense of the revision of what it was to me was very Afrofuturistic. And she just wanted it to be beautiful and she wanted it to be powerful. And, you know, outside of that, it was just really me bringing, you know, what I thought was best for for her and, and, and what she wanted to do. And, you know, nobody really knew what, what it would be. You know, saying I could say the same about Fruitvale, I could say the same about Moonlight. You kind of go in working and creating and you're in the moment so you're not really thinking past that you know you're not really thinking past that second of you know what's the set going to be and how do we make this feel like the 1800s where you know black women are empowered and I think you can see that in in her visual album and you can hear it in the music and a lot of it was like there was a lot too that we just did like she walked by 
something and, you know, like some graffiti and be like, yeah, this is a great spot right right here, yeah, like on our way to another set. And she's like, let's, let's, let's do this real quick. Let's, you know, and we'd set up something really fast. And, and um, so there was a lot of spontaneity and you can see that too. And she's just an amazing person. I mean, her... And, and, you know, I always tell people, be clear, this was all, all Beyonce. This was all, like, she brought so much to it as far as, you know, just creating the, the essence of the moments, you know. At one point, she was like, I need you to bring some rope and some red ribbon and... Um, what was the other thing? And some deer antlers. And I was like, wow, what's that going to be? <laughs> what's what's going to happen? And, you know, it ended up being this really beautiful moment. So it was sort of just this very organic way of, of creating um, this sort of disjointed interpretation of of a feeling more than a world. It was It was mm-hmm. really about trying to represent a feeling. And I always say that about everything. It's like, you know, Ryan on Fruitvale Station, he created a very strong family in the crew. And that shows on screen. Um, The way that he leads a crew shows on screen. The way he works with people shows on screen. And his brilliance shows on screen. So it's every... You know, when you when you have a feeling when you're watching a film, it's it's goes beyond what you're seeing into what people brought to it. You know, it's like what you put out in the world will come back to you. It's the same way with when you're working on a movie. Mm. Speaking of Fruitvale Station, one of the things I found interesting you um, you wrote about in Film Comment. Uh, I think this is around the time. Uh, might have been last year, it was, actually. Yeah. But you were talking about Fruit Fail Station. And one of the things you mentioned was that when you were working on that, you would watch all the videos that you could could find of the night that Oscar Grant, who is the subject of the movie, um, was killed in the, in the BART station. And you talked to family members and people at the hospital where he uh, they attempted to save his life. And, I mean, working with so- something like that, and even Moonlight, these very difficult uh, subject matters to process and f- as a viewer to watch. But as you working on that specifically, did you find that difficult to grap- with, grapple with, um, having to confront tragedy like that repeatedly as part of your creative process? Absolutely. Um, you know, Fruitvale was extremely hard. And... Um, I can't imagine doing it with anybody but Ryan. And um, it was hard. I mean, you, like when, at one point we were all on the BART platform at Fruitvale. And we had walked over, Ryan had said, you know, let's come over here where there was a scene. And we all kind of stood, me and Ryan and Rachel Morrison and the location man- manager, Matthew Verita, we all stood in this circle and we looked down and Ryan said, that's, that's where the bullet hit the floor, that missing chunk. And I mean, just mm-hmm. tears. Because you just, you know what I mean? Like, and so you're, it's that all day, every day. And... 
we leaned on each other so much through that, you know. And and I always look, you know, you, look, you put kind of blinders on sometimes in your craft. Uh, you know, I have this one thing I need to be doing, and I look at Ryan, and he's got all of it, you know. So he took all of that on, you know, um, all of that emotion, all of that feeling, and then doubly because that's where he's from. And he could have been Oscar. And uh, that's that's a truth that you, th- you know, that I thought about several times, and I think Ryan said. And and you take that with you because I think what Ryan did with Fruvale was about humanity. And so, you know, you get, you know, I even have a hard time talking about it to this day, mm-hmm. is giving a human being their humanity and not placing a judgment of what we're told we're supposed to think or not think on it because it's a human life he's a human being he's a father he's a son he's a brother you know he's a boyfriend fiance a grandson so you look at your own family and know that that may not last for for as long as you think in your head it should last and it, it becomes personal it becomes everything so you creatively then have to harness those feelings right some of them you need to put in a box and put on a shelf but some of them you need to harness in order to create the look of the film like you take that on as part of how you approach what you do with things about what's important to be in the frame and and uh, how things reflect on the character and how to keep it neutral because of we're not here to make a judgment because it can be very easy to go that direction i did not do that you won't see in oscar's bedroom the normal tropes that you would if it had been someone else making that film maybe so it was important to strip those things away and that came from a lot of my emotion and anger a little bit not a little bit a lot i'm not gonna lie what would you consider like the normal tropes you would see Oh, you know, rap posters and and um, swishers, you know, even though we did have some of those because mm-hmm. Oscar did smoke those. <laughs> so that was real. Uh, but, yeah. you know, things like that, you know, things where it's like becomes a stereotype 100 percent. And so people can look at it and instantly make a judgment. I have to talk about Black Panther. (laughs) And I realize (laughs) that you can only say so much. And we, at the time of this recording, are still like about two and a half weeks away from the release of the movie. Mm -hmm. But this is your your third time now collaborating with Ryan Ryan Coogler um, after Fruitvale and Creed. And can you just talk like the the. The world looks amazing just based off of what I've seen for uh, from the trailers and from the images. Can you talk about like what sort of freedom and 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 uh, what your creative process was in creating this world um, that is based off of a comic book uh, world? Uh, but I think it'll be the first time we're sort of seeing it on screen in this in this way. What was that like for you? It's it's very different, I think, from many of the other films you've worked on so far absolutely it was amazing um another journey that i can't see myself having taken without ryan coogler 
Mm-hmm. And because he's brilliant. And I say that all the time. And he's always like, Ugh, but I'm like, no, really. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a big undertaking. And uh, I think, again, the most important thing and I, the way that Ryan loves to work is place. And it was all about Wakanda. And I really started because I was familiar with Black Panther, but not really super familiar with, like, his whole story and and, uh, his inception and all of that. So I started with the 66, when he first showed up in 1966 with Jack Kirby and and, um, Stan Lee and looked at Jack Kirby's designs and sort of sat with that for a while, like, what he was doing, the time period, taking all of that into consideration um, and what was happening in on the continent at the time, the actual uh, 1966, what was going on on the continent, um, because that always, you know, brings back a little bit. And, and what news did we know in America about what was going on in the continent? That's because we didn't have the information highway then. So started there. And once I started, like, sort of understanding the character and really understanding the aesthetic that Kirby was going to, for and then all the other uh, artists and authors of the Black Panthers thereafter, you know, in the 90s and um, and then Ta-Nehisi Coates. I mean, you have Panther's Rage, which was sort of the first graphic novel, um, and then Ta-Nehisi Coates, which we did use all of that as source material. And, and then it was really about like, okay, we started with where is Wakanda placed in, in Africa? And because that's going to inform everything that then happens in that country, um, who migrated there, uh, the people in the regions around that area, like the tribes that then would come to that that country that were in a proximity where they could get there within a, you know, and, and land there. So it, it was a lot of research again. And, you know, it was <laughs> I had a lot of freedom in that Marvel was fantastic with really letting Ryan and I, as far as like the sets and the look and all this, um, drive the ship, you know. And they, you know, I would present looks to them and and I would present concepts to them um, with everybody there, me, Ryan, everybody, the whole team. And they would give their critiques and they would, you know, say like, you know, maybe this, maybe that. They, of course, they had they, they do they do their thing, and then I would go back and you know, work on those tweaks and and maybe even come up with brand new ideas and stuff. So it was collaborative in the sense where they really were lending their expertise for me because I'd never worked on anything that big or with a company that that large, uh, lending their expertise and 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 what would be best, what would look best and how this would play on screen and how we would get this done and, and, and things like that. But um, they really were like, yeah, this is awesome. You know? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know if I was lucky or not, but they really let me kind of just do everything I wanted to do pretty much. I can't think of something that they, they were really like, no, nah, that's awful. You know, not that's at all. awesome. Where where did you wind up deciding where it would be set, like Western Africa, Eastern, like, and how did that inform the any of like the sort of details that you put into the design? I can say, I guess I can say where it's located. The borders of DRC, Kenya, Sudan, uh, border Uganda, 
so it's sort of like Sudan above Uganda. So it's like right where Burundi actually kind of is, but up more by Lake Kivu. Okay. So it's it's got a waterway and it's got... Um, so more eastern. Yes, it's yeah. more eastern. It's okay. way more eastern. Right. I mean, it's right between... Um, like Lake Victoria is right there, and then um, Kenya is not too far off. So Rwanda's right below it. So yeah, and and then you have Ethiopia because we wanted to have a lot of the the river tribes in Ethiopia were references for our tribes. Um, so a lot of the Oma Valley tribes were references for our river tribes, and mm-hmm. um, and then we used a lot of like Congo fishing. Um, fishermen as reference for our river tribe as well, the way they fish. So that's how what surrounds it affects it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't then look to Namibia or look to North Africa for reference just because it's, you know, we wanted to stay in sub-Saharan Africa and we wanted it to be a close, uh, you know, because it's supposed to be like 10,000 years ago that they mig- migrated, so it should be a close you know, Africa's so huge. I was like, well, you know, what would what would it take somebody to go six, seven hundred miles? Not that people don't on foot, but you know, to move an entire tribe, let's stay in that parameter. So that's where we started with that, and then we started with then we went into the topography of what that country looks like. What are the needs of the country? Where does uh, the capital want to be placed within the country? Like, what are the mountain ranges? We made maps of where everything was in the country in our in our Wakanda or world, and all the tribes lived and why they lived in those parts. And you know, I, I did a little five hundred page Bible to uh, as a foundation that kind of talks about the timeline of the history of Wakanda, the vibranium, how that works, how it was found, the heart shaped herb, how that works, how it was found. Um, what every tribe, like our tribes, our five tribes, um, who our influences were, other tribes, uh, you know, creating languages, using insibity as a language um, that you'll see in the film. Some people have already been um, transcribing a lot of things in the film. I keep mm-hmm. getting Twitters with like, is what, you know, with the language we made up, like people are already figuring it out. I was really impressed by that. Oh, wow. And, um, so yeah, it was a lot of research and, and it was a great deal of fun. And, you know, the, it was two years ago, pretty much that I got hired on this job at this point. Ryan's been with it for years. I mean, I can't wait till it comes out in theaters. I can actually talk, talk about it and not have to worry about everything <laughs> I'm saying. Cause I'm still like, I signed an NDA. I can't. Um, but, um, it's going to be awesome. I'm so proud of Ryan. Well, I, I have to say hearing you talk about all of your research makes me feel so good because not that I was too worried because it is Ryan Coogler and, you know, he's very good at these things. And Creed was also very, um, specific about its time and place, but like, it's so hard to find a movie made in America that is so specific about its, uh, even though it, obviously Wakanda is a fictional country, uh, I hope most people know that. Um, yeah. It's it's great to know that you're taking so much care and and being so specific about uh, an African country, fictional or no, because so often it's just like Africa, <laughs> and, yeah, and there's no exactly. specificity. Yeah, so yeah, that exactly. And that was so important. It was yeah. so important to, you know, not only like pay homage and and honor and have reverence 
for it. I mean, it, it can it is is emotional as well because mm-hmm. you know I, I came onto this project not just for Ryan, but because I knew it just needed to be right, and I knew it needed to have somebody who was going to be objective about that and be real about it. And you know, we're we're looking at creating a country that had never been colonized. You have to feel what it's like not to have freedom in order to create it. Mm-hmm. So that it was just important to us and I get a little broken up about it and um it's it be, it, it's really emotional for me. Mm. Well, really quickly before you go, I have my one last question, which is what I ask all of my guests, um which is when is the last time you saw yourself in a film or TV show um, and you felt represented, whether it was by a character or by a theme or the story? And it has to be something you have not personally worked on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I know it's, it's a very loaded. You know, <laughs> I will tell you this. And this was a surprise to me because I went to see with my son. We went to see Wonder Woman. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'm going to go see Wonder Woman. But I surprised myself and I cried during the training scene. And I mean, I couldn't even control myself. I was crying. My son was like, what is going on with you? And it was that feeling that I had never seen a woman in a movie battle not for a man, not for someone putting her up to be an assassin, but because they were plain and simple powerful. That was it. And I thought, what would my life have been had I seen that at five, at seven, at ten, if I believed that? If I was shown that over and over and over and over and over again, that I am powerful. And uh, that just really hit me like, whoa, you know. And that was the only time me, as me personally, that I felt represented in a feeling. Mm. That's a a great answer. I... (laughs) I, I think your life would have been more like a, a straight white guy's life had you <laughs> seen that at age five or seven. <laughs> you know, I mean, who knows? I it was just such a weird like I never thought that I would be emotional over something like that at all. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that's a wrap. And again, Wakanda forever. This probably won't be the last time we talk about Black Panther, but for now, it's going to be the last time we devote an entire episode to it. So thank you for joining us on all of these very special episodes, and we look forward to next week to discussing the Oscars. Represent is produced by the lovely Austin Berlin Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli, and our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time.